for Thursday, September 30th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, a key set of models about the course of the pandemic shows the worst might soon be over. It's not really the end of the pandemic. It's a shift towards a pattern of a manageable infection that we will continue to see uh, winter after winter. Cecile Vibou, an epidemiologist with the National Institutes of Health who helps run the COVID-19 scenario modeling hub, joins me to talk about those projections and what they say about what the next six months could bring. That's next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. The COVID-19 pandemic is slowing down in the U.S., and a key set of models says it could continue to do so. That's according to epidemiologist Cecile Vibou with the National Institutes of Health. She's a member of the team running the COVID-19 scenario modeling hub that put out those models, and she's with me now for more. Cecile, thanks for talking with me. Great. I know it's not always easy to talk about data and numbers on the radio without necessarily having these models in front of you to look at, Um, but just kind of generally, this latest set of projections, what do they tell us about where the pandemic is potentially going from here? Yeah, so those are six months ahead projections. So from September 2021 to March 2022. And what they tell us is that we are on the descending phase of the Delta wave uh, in the US. And that incidence uh, is uh, most likely going to continue to decline down to the end of of November, December of this year, very sharply, and then um, stabilize at a low level, basically the level of incidence that we've seen this past summer before the rise of Delta. So very comfortable level of incidence and also quite manageable. Because those are six months ahead projections and a lot can change in six months, those projections are tied to different scenarios. And so in some scenarios we've looked at, we've also 
try to anticipate what will be the impact of a new variant coming in in mid-November and a variant that will be even more transmissible than the strains we are currently facing. And what this tells us is that we could then see a resurgence in early 2022, although it wouldn't be of the same scale as what we've seen this summer because there's been so much immunity accumulated uh, in the population, both through vaccination and natural infection. What are the actual truths on the ground that really back up these projections? Yes, so those are projections that uh, are generated by combining results from nine different mathematical models. And those models are calibrated to um, weekly number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths that are reported in the U.S., And so those models that we use in those projections have been running most of them since the beginning of the pandemic. And each week they have been making projections. And so, you know, we have a relatively good level of confidence on those models. Of course, all of our projections come with confidence intervals and uncertainty. So, um, you know, there are some aspects of the projection that are less certain For instance, while all the models agree that incidences will be sharply declining in the coming weeks, there is more difference in the impact of a new variant. Some models predict that there is still enough susceptible to spark a large wave, although most models predict that it should be a more moderate impact. But there is some uncertainty there. Um, So those models, again, are well-validated, but like all models, you know, they are Uh, subject to assumptions, and they can be wrong occasionally. This made a lot of news last week when these models were released, because what they essentially are pointing to is an end scenario for the pandemic. So how did it feel to you and your team to make these computations and and see these models pop up? I mean, this this seems pretty striking news that things generally are, are predicted to start to calm down. Yeah, so I think, you know, it it is good news overall. (laughs) There's no denying it. But, you know, like almost 18 months now of of COVID-19 has told us that we should be prepared for the unexpected because it's a pandemic. And I think the wild card here is really evolution of the virus and those new variants. And so we are in in a very good situation now in the sense that there's so much immunity accumulated in the population because we have, you know, such good vaccines but we can't rule out that perhaps in a year, a new variant uh, that escapes immunity partially would come back and cause a relatively important wave of infection. You know, like the longer term view is still quite uncertain. I think everything tells us that we are moving towards a pattern that's much more manageable. And, you know, we're going to have to think of COVID-19 more like the flus that we see every winter and not really like something pandemic that we have to worry a lot about and, you know, close our schools and telework, et cetera, and not travel anymore. But this is, you know, it's not really the end of the pandemic. It's a shift towards a a pattern of a a manageable infection that we will continue to see uh, winter after winter. You keep mentioning the possible emergence of, of a new variant. It's really striking to me to remember 
just the way that public health experts and officials were thinking and talking about this pandemic before Delta. There was this sense at the start of the summer and the late spring that the outlook really was improving. Then Delta came and completely erased that. So I'm wondering, with your previous models, how accurate have they been? And, and how really can you take into account that kind of real wild card variable, whether that's a new variant or, or something else that maybe we're not even thinking right now that causes the situation to deteriorate further? That's a very good question, and that's why we have models, right? I mean, so we can simulate what will be the impact of new variants with characteristics that we design. One of them is increased transmissibility, and that was really what we were seeing with Delta. But we could also uh, model the impact of a variant that escapes immunity and see what that would do uh, to the epidemic curve. So models are very good at that, at simulating what could happen. There's a bit of a, maybe of a caveat to what you said about Delta. Yes, on a national scale, but for Delta, it looked like things were going very well and then Delta came in and things were really bad for a while. However, that was not true everywhere in the US. And Delta made the news because in a lot of states, in particular uh, in, in the southern part of this U.S., vaccination was low. But if you look at the northern part of the U.S., especially the northeast, the northwest, the coasts where vaccination was high, the Delta wave didn't have very much of an impact, especially on hospitalization, on, on death. And that was predictable. And we indeed predicted it. <laughs> so at the very beginning of the Delta wave in April or May, where we knew that Delta was just arriving because it had been in the UK. It was starting to trickle in, in the US. We made those projections and we were able to identify states that had a, a very high chance of having a problem with Delta. So that's the positive aspect. The negative aspect is that models can be wrong, uh, sometimes are partially wrong. We didn't really get the size of the Delta wave, right? We could tell which states would be in trouble very well. Uh, but we were we underestimated a little bit what would be the impact of of Delta, but there was you know value in those projections, uh, and then you know then going back and trying to understand why we didn't get it entirely right. This is did you wash your hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with epidemiologist Cecile Vibu with the National Institutes of Health. She's a member of the team running the COVID-19 Scenario Modeling Hub that's just released some projections about where things go next in the pandemic. One of the variables that y'all really pull out and, you know, project different scenarios for is childhood vaccination. We currently don't have any vaccines authorized or approved for most children. So how could that affect the outcome here? Because it seems to me like that's really the next front of this vaccination effort is getting kids inoculated. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that, you know, there's a worry from parents, of course, that uh, they want to protect their children, especially as schools reopen and as more contacts and mixing as we go back to normal <laughs> or the post-COVID-19 normal. And so what we find in, in those projections where we have scenarios with and without vaccination of the 5 to 11 years old, which is the next group that's probably going to be authorized for vaccination at some point, we see that the vaccination would improve outcomes um, moderately, however, because there's already a lot of uh, immunity in the population, but it would uh, reduce incidences by about 9%. 
if there is no new variant. So if it's just Delta, so the end of Delta, and it would have a, a slightly bigger effect if a new variant came in, uh, and there the reduction in cases would be in the order of 13%. So that's a significant amount of cases. It's, a, it's a, about 1.2 million cases that would be prevented by vaccinating children. So there's a, an indirect benefit of vaccinating children, as well as the direct benefit of your kid not being sick with COVID-19 uh, when the next wave comes in. I'm also wondering about uh, waning immunity. We're in the midst of a conversation now in this country about getting boosters approved for people who have already gotten a primary series of vaccine. There seems to be data that like all vaccines, these vaccines for COVID-19 do offer less protection over time. How do these models factor in waning immunity? Yeah, so that's something we've been very interested in. So our prior round of projection which uh, was a sort of a, a private round <laughs> that we didn't uh, make official, but that because it was sort of a training set, but that was purely focused on waning immunity and trying to understand what this could do to the dynamics. And then in this round of projection that we released last week, some of the models in incorporate waning immunity in the projections. And so what we see is that with waning immunity, that would lead to some people being susceptible again to infection, but not most likely not to severe disease. So most likely not to hospitalization and death, because all of the studies we are seeing tell us that the protection of the vaccine over the long term on hospitalization and death is still very strong, above 90%, right, even against Delta. And so when you plug that in the model, you can see that waning immunity will lead to low incidences that are a little bit higher than if we didn't have waning immunity. So there would be this sort of constant influx of susceptible people that would feed a little bit of infection in your community, but no substantial effect on hospitalization and deaths. That picture that you painted there is one that I've talked with folks about on this podcast before. What does, a, you know, living with COVID-19, once we leave this pandemic phase, really look like? Do your models get into what that picture actually looks like? Um, what our, our new reality of living with the coronavirus could look like once we exit the pandemic phase? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. Uh, so. By choice, our models only look at a six-month time horizon. And I think, you know, to answer your question, you really need to look at the multi-year. You know, what would the next five, 10 years look like? But other models have, have tried to address that. And they do suggest that we will get to a cycle of annual epidemics that tend to be seasonal, so in the wintertime, uh, like we see for flu. Um, and now the size of those epidemics really will depend on the balance between the arrival of new strains that are just driven by evolution and the fact that there's immunity in the population and how fast we lose this immunity. You know, I think that's, that's still a question because we don't have a, a lot of information on coronaviruses, right? We have seasonal coronaviruses that people have suddenly looked at very closely in the last two years, but there's so little data there. And also the, the disease seems to be quite different from COVID-19. Um, so there's some uncertainty. I think it is pretty likely we'll go back to those uh, annual cycle winter epidemics of different size, depending on what strain is circulating. So a model that's very similar to flu, uh, but the exact size of those peaks that we'll see 
uh, in the future winter will depend on you know on the global evolution and arrival of these new strains. And there we don't really have a good handle on that. The work that you're doing, I think, has very different audiences. There is the audience in the public health space who maybe truly understands all the work that goes into putting projections like this together. Then there's the more general audience. I'm thinking of elected officials who have to make decisions about how to respond to the pandemic. Even regular people who are going to hear this interview, hear what you have to say, and this is going to color how they think about what comes next in the pandemic. So how should, you know, if you want to maybe pick two of these groups, people who are decision makers and kind of everyday people, how should they think about um, what this latest set of projections says about the kind of course of things? You know, you're completely right. We try to cater to all audiences, although I think our primary audience is, is public health people, right? We work very closely with the CDC on those projections. Um, but for the rest of the world, I think you can look at those projections and get a, a picture of you know, where things are going. For instance, if you're a, a lay person and wants to plan your next vacation <laughs> somewhere in the US, then you can look at our state level projection and see what will happen in the next six months and possibly pick a state where things are going to uh, look very, very nice uh, in the future. Uh, I think if you're an elected official, you can also look at hospitalizations, for instance, and, and, and try to get a grasp for how bad it could be. Uh, I mean, right now we're in a period where our projections are relatively optimistic, right? So I think uh, there you you uh, might not worry too much. But um, a few months ago, when we were projecting the size of the Delta wave, you could really look at the hospitalization rates and and see whether what that would do to your community. I mean, do you have to uh, cancel elective surgeries because uh, I mean you're expecting a hospitalization that's really too high? Do you really have to do something about improving vaccination coverage in your community because it's it's, it's just not resilient to transmissible variants, uh, et cetera? So yeah, I think uh, there are ways to use this projection just for, for planning purposes. The question that has been on everyone's mind since they first became aware of this situation in early 2020 was when and how is it going to end? Do you worry at all um, that something like this latest set of projections, which says here is a potential scenario for, for reaching the end, that that's somehow going to be misused by people, that, that folks are going to say, oh, well, you know, now I don't need to go get vaccinated because these projections say we're on our way out of it anyway, or making this kind of forecast is potentially going to impact the behavior of regular people to the point where it kind of changes the projections themselves. That's a good question. I mean, I think in the last, uh, it says five, 10 years in, in, in the world of disease modeling, people's behavior has become some, like a, a really interesting question and something that people are trying to model, <laughs> but that's difficult, right? Modeling human behavior. But I think what we've seen during the outbreak is that people's behavior has changed, not necessarily because of projection, but because of what they're seeing in their community, in particular, the amount of cases. And when things go bad in their community, they get vaccinated, they, wear, they start wearing masks, they start uh, you know, having fewer contacts. So this sort of reactive behavior has been you know, really useful to sort of slow down uh, growing incidences. And so, you know, on, on one level, I, I wish that our projections were impactful enough that they could change behavior. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, most people re respond to what they see in their local community and what they hear in the news about, you know, hospitalization rates or 
um, you know, friends or family who have become uh, infected and maybe even had uh, very poor outcomes with COVID-19. And that's what sparks them to get vaccinated uh, or take more precautions. Cecile Vabou is an epidemiologist with the National Institutes of Health who helps run the COVID-19 Scenario Modeling Hub. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.